whatever happened to suck for Sam? Now it's lose for uh, lose for Lawrence. Lose for Lawrence. Lose for Lawrence. Tank for Trevor. there welcome to hot takedown the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down today is september 15th 2020 and i'm sarah ziegler the sports editor at 538 joining me in new york city is senior sports writer neil Payne. hi neil hi sarah how's it going good i think we're both uh, suffering from construction around our apartment so that'll be a fun addition to the show <laughs> i think they stopped hammering uh around me but maybe that'll change you know it's it's a fluid situation yeah, absolutely. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Good morning, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. I see you're you're back in the Mazda studio. I am. Um, you know, California's in great shape. You can't go inside anywhere. You can't go outside. Um, so that that leaves a lot of options. <laughs> Basically, house arrest. Ugh. How is the air quality? Horrible. Yeah, it's horrible. But I was actually, can we, I was surprised they even played the Niners game, to be honest. That was, that was a little, uh, that, I feel like they just couldn't even bother with one more wrinkle on this season. They almost didn't. And uh, yeah. I was surprised there was a game last night, the um, baseball game, the Seattle Mariners and the Oakland A's. I was seeing pictures of that. So I turned it on and was like, oh, that's, the smoke was just like terrible. It, everything looks like the apocalypse right now. So that's cool. Yeah, but Kyle Lewis made an amazing home run robbery. That's true. That's, That's true. all that matters. So there's, That's all that matters. So there's that. <laughs> I'm glad that we're um we're we're keeping the important things in perspective. You you got to. You got yeah. to. On today's show, we'll talk about how the first week of NFL football shook out, who were surprise disappointments, who were surprisingly impressive, and who were just Josh Allen. We'll also be joined by 538's own Chris Herring to talk about what the Houston Rockets' second-round exit from the NBA playoffs means both for their future and their statistically savvy style of play. And finally, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. The NFL returned to the weekend, and despite wildfires on the West Coast, the ongoing pandemic, and fallout from years of systemic racism, the league made it look like business as usual. We did get some unexpected results. The Arizona Cardinals looked exciting. The rumors of Aaron Rodgers' decline might be overstated. And the Philadelphia Eagles lost to a team that doesn't even have its own name. Dan Orvlosky on ESPN's Get Up had a pointed theory about what went wrong for the Eagles. The only way, the only way Washington comes back into that game is you turn the football over and you let the defensive line become dominant. And I understand there was injuries. I'm aware of that. But you are a good enough player. You're experienced enough. You're mature enough. You went through last year to understand there's a difference between being a player or a talent and being a quarterback. You did not quarterback your team well enough. You let that defensive line get going, and then they got going and going, and momentum took over. And so it's so disappointing watching what Carson Wentz experienced last year and watching him not feel the need to try and win the football game every single play and see the results of carrying that team to the playoffs. It's so disappointing to watch him come out and do that yesterday. Full disclosure, all three of us are fans of teams that did not perform well this weekend with the Vikings and Jets struggling along with the Eagles. But we're going to focus on your team, Neil. Do, Yay. Neil, do the stats agree with 
Orlovsky that Wentz is responsible for the Eagles losing the game? Uh, I mean, for the most part, they do. In terms of uh, his own statistics, he had the worst performance by any starter of the week, according to our QB ELO ratings. And it like wasn't even close. Tyrod Taylor was second worst uh, and he actually won. Uh, whereas <laughs> Wentz did not win. Uh, and, and that's true if you look at a bunch of different metrics and if you dig into them more. he uh, His completion percentage was 10.3 percentage points lower than expected, according to NFL's next-gen stats, which was second worst among uh, any starter this week. Uh, so I think any way you slice it, he had a terrible game. And yes, you know, the, the people that he were thro- he was throwing to uh, were not necessarily stretching the field that much, aside from Jalen Rager with his 55-yard uh, touchdown ca- or long catch. It wasn't a touchdown. Um, but aside from that, you know, it was a lot of like Dallas Goddard and, uh, you know, Greg Ward, but picking up six yards, you know, things like that. So it just was not a good performance by uh, the whole offense, but I think there's a lot of truth to the idea that Wentz is a guy that he really runs hot and cold, and he does seem to try to take on too much himself when uh, things are going poorly around him, and when he faces pressure, he'll hold on to the ball way too much, and it creates a lot of mistakes, uh, and you saw that with the two picks that he threw uh, and just in general a bunch of sacks that he took also. I will say in his defense, I do think he is. I think it is accurate that he's trying to do too much. And I think he he still has some sort of Nick Foles inferiority complex going on. Um, let's let's be I honest. mean, how could he not? I mean, how come could on. he not? But I think football teams defense could be a lot better, too. So football team has Chase Young, who had a stack and a half. Ryan Kerrigan. I mean, they, they sacked him eight times. That's, that's not terrible. I mean, they look good. So um, it could be an improved defense on that side. You know, that's the thing about this, you know, week one, we don't know anything about these teams. I mean, we know some, but there are going to be some surprises, some teams that are a little bit better, some teams that are a lot worse. And the end of the year, maybe these losses or wins don't look as good or don't look as bad. So that could be at play here. Yeah, no, that's a good point, Jeff. And I think, uh, you know, some of my analysis is sort of basing it off football team having a bad defense last year. They were 29th in EPA after adjusting for strength of schedule. So the expectation would be, well, you're the you're the Eagles come out here. You know, if Wentz is uh, a franchise quarterback, a Super Bowl aspirant quarterback come out and beat that team. And and when they got out to the 17, nothing lead, they looked like they were just going to, you know, cruise to victory. And I know it's not always that easy, you know, in NFL teams, even football teams uh, are, you know, <laughs> they, they put up a, a fight eventually most of the time, but still, yeah, it was kind of a stunning collapse. And maybe we do have to revise our expectation about, football team's defense, but I think we also have to revise our expectation about the Eagles offense. I like can't with you guys just calling it football team. This is going to die. That's, that's, that's going to be a know. thing. You could also call them Washington. I really want to make it a thing. <laughs> I, love it. I love that on the graph. I mean, even on the Fox broadcast, which I found so absurd, they would, you know, when they showed the comparison between the teams, it would be Eagles. And then on the next line, it would be football team. <laughs> I want it to stay. So I I'm do too. Yeah, I want them to just it? hold on to it Make forever. Make this your thing. Oh, I yeah. think part of it is great, to be honest. <laughs> I love it. It's very old-timey and hilarious, but it's also like a, just a nice way to make fun, to mock 
Dan Snyder with like every with every sentence. And I'm I am into that. Um, okay, so was do you think was Wentz's effort the most disappointing performance of week one? Was it the worst quarterback uh performance by our ratings anyway, Neil? It was, yeah, for sure. Um, and you know, again, when you adjust those are adjusted for defensive expectations, which again could be off potentially, but I think it's fair to say that uh, we would think that they would be a below average defense still, even if you kind of regress them pretty hard to the mean uh, from last year. And so to kind of come out and have a um, negative 21.3 offensive uh, expected points added relative to average uh, is really, you can't win that way, obviously. (laughs) What were some other of the, you know, sort of disappointing quarterback performances of the weekend? I mean, the Browns. And I think in general, their their offense, um, it wasn't just Baker, but it was also Baker. Uh, so that was pretty, uh, yeah. pretty bad uh, in week one. Um, I think that uh, Ryan Fitzpatrick uh, probably is not long for the Miami Dolphins starting job. And yeah, it, it was overshadowed by Wentz being terrible, but Dwayne Haskins was really bad also, which not probably great. could actually, you know, second year quarterback. Uh, but I mentioned that Wentz was second worst in terms of completion percentage above expected. Haskins was worst in terms of that. Uh, he was 12.4 percentage points less uh, worse than expected. So that game featured the two worst quarterbacks by that metric in the entire league and week one facing each other. Oof, good times. Well, let's let's talk about about two other quarterbacks that um, I just want to talk about every week. Clearly, I want to talk about Tom Brady and Cam Newton because, of course, one of one of those performances obviously was better than the other. But Jeff, how much are you reading into Brady's two interceptions and Newton's two running touchdowns, like the opposite ends of of performance there? Well, okay. For starters, not too much to answer your question. Um, I, I think, you know, without with this kind of strange offseason and a new team and no preseason. But by the way, we don't need preseason. That's what we learned in 2020 also. I mean, there was a lot of talk that these teams are going to be wildly unprepared. And we did see some of that rust, but we always see that, I think. Um, but generally, I think it proved that preseason's a scam and we don't need it. Side point, side point on top of that, except for maybe kickers. What was going on with the kickers this weekend? Uh, Horrible. Like, yeah. Guskowski was like, the announcers were saying Tennessee need to score a touchdown because Steven Guskowski couldn't be relied on for a 30 yard field goal. I'm like, <laughs> what is happening? That was a journey. Uh, he redeemed journey himself in the he end. He himself. I'm like, oh, yeah, he's a good kicker. But it was just strange. No, um, but, but even was, at that last kick, everyone was like, wait, is he going to make it? It's like no, so short. It's, it's awful. And there was, <laughs> every kicker was awful, it seemed like. Um, anyway. I've lost sight of the narrative here. Tom Brady. Yeah, I, it's going to, he's going to, I don't want to read too much into it. I think it would be crazy to, we've done this so many times. We've done this when he was on the Patriots, written the obit too early. Um, and I think he needs a little more time before I can judge on that. Cause like, clearly he was not quite in sync. Um, especially on that first, I think the first interception was clearly him and Mike Evans weren't connecting and, you know, weren't on the same page. And then the second one was just bad. That was just bad. Just threw a clear pick six. But by the way, 
He threw a pick six last time we saw him on New England to the Titans. No, it's what he does. So he also <laughs> could just be old. But I think, you know, as the season goes and he gets more comfortable, I, I think it'll get better. I saw enough to say that I, I'm not like too worried that this season's going to be a complete disaster. Um, frankly, I actually thought Breeze was the one who looked maybe like he's not quite up to NFL starter level anymore. He really is arm strength. I mean, we've been talking about this for a couple years now, but he, he didn't seem like he can throw the ball downfield at all. I mean, I know we had one long pass, which was, and this is really more an extension of last year, but I, I would worry more about that, frankly, than, than Brady, but that being said, Cam Newton running the ball, you know, this was against Miami, whereas, you know, which is a bad team. And, you know, Brady was playing a team that's, you know, the Saints defense looked great. So you got to factor that in. But I, I do think that Cam Newton power football running the ball. I mean, the guy's impossible to tackle. And I think a lot of us have forgotten how good Cam Newton is when he's healthy. Just a reminder that Cam Newton was a free agent until very late in the offseason and nobody signed him like that. I still I can't get over it. <laughs> like not that this one game is, you know, a, a perfect understanding of what his season will be. But again, he could be on. He could he's he's a better quarterback than many of the quarterbacks in the league. Um, but but here we're going to. You know, the teams are going to ride with uh, who they have. Yeah. Mitch Trubisky, you know, <laughs> still trying to make that happen. He won a big game. <laughs> yeah. Mitch Trubisky, MVP. Yeah. And I would say also that if this is an indication of how the Cam Newton season goes this year, the Patriots are going to be in great shape because he was able to be really efficient. He was 15 for 19 passing uh, when when he was called upon, but they also didn't put too much pressure on him to win the game with his arm. And instead, they just controlled the ball. They used him for read options, and he was looked like vintage Cam Newton uh, running that. And that's not an element that the Patriots really have traditionally run. Uh, and so I think that this was like the perfect game plan for the 2020 Patriots, I think. Yeah, I think that's right. So the Patriots looked pretty, pretty good. Um, a lot of teams looked pretty good. I was surprised that, you know, teams were playing as crisply as they were. Some teams more than others. But Neil, who was our model most impressed with? Well, Sarah, I'll tell you, the team that gained the most points of ELO, at least in week one, were the Green Bay Packers, your favorite team. They picked up 40 points uh, after really pulling off a convincing victory over the Vikings. I don't know if we want to talk about that or not. Uh, and then no, followed no, by... No, thank you. Actually, no. Followed by the Seahawks, <laughs> the football team, the Jaguars. Big uh, upset, you know, come from behind win for Gardner Minshew and the Jaguars, who we thought were rebuilding. Uh, and then the Cardinals and the Bills. And of course, the Ravens looked great, uh, although, you know, it was against the the Browns. But still, um, you know, it looks like uh, Lamar Jackson has picked up exactly where he left off uh, in the regular season last year. Um, and if we're talking about the other end of the spectrum, the, certainly there are the Eagles, but then also the 49ers 
lost 25 points of ELO. That was the second biggest uh, shortfall of any team after the first week. And that's a team that I have a feeling we're just going to be going, you know, seesawing on back and forth all year long, you know, about Jimmy G and about, you know, whether the Niners can repeat last year or you know are they going to regress and that was true during the off season and that was true i think we talked last week about it and it just seems like it's it's going to be a theme i think with them yeah but that also again i mean that also could be that the cardinals Cardinals oh i I fully agree with that actually with hopkins New Hopkins, 14 catches, 150 yards you know murray ran for 90 yards i mean it's a against a very good defense so what are they gonna do when they play a really bad defense <laughs> um you know they they could be something special so we'll see on that um I, I was shocked by the Colts that was probably the most surprising to me because most people even worse most people had Jacksonville as the worst team in the league this year as a team that was was actually you know openly rebuilding slash tanking for uh for Lawrence. That now seems to be the Jets' honor. Um, so, so we'll whatever happened there. to suck for Sam? Now it's lose for uh, lose for, for Lawrence. Kind of lose for Lawrence. Lose for Lawrence. It, it for does, Trevor. It does show that even again, tanking is hard in the NFL. Like there are just too many too many things that can go wrong. And 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 Indianapolis for their much ballyhooed offensive line is going to realize that. Yeah, Philip Rivers throws a lot of interceptions. That's just <laughs> what he does. It's hard to win. I feel like they should have known that already. I, I yeah, feel like they, we knew that, right? <laughs> film on that, I think. You know, yeah. just 20 years worth. So 2020 is just, you know, fraught. <laughs> There's no getting around it. And we can't ignore the complicated backdrops of these games. Jeff, what did you think of how in its first weekend, the NFL handled player protests and and its own stance on racial justice? Awkward would be the word I think that best describes it. A lot of it felt very contrived, felt a little unnecessary just hearing like, you know, Phil Simms talk or Al Michaels talk about unity. And I'm like, all right, guys, you know. It does kind of ignore their past. They're trying to like we're we're great with everything in the players now. We're all united, and it just it's obviously it's it's a little forced. But then again, what wouldn't feel phony? Uh, I on Thursday night, Chiefs Texans, first of all, seeing end racism painted in small letters in the end zone next to the yeah. giant Chiefs logo, which feels. Like, I don't feel like we really understand what we're talking about when we're talking about ending <laughs> racism. Um, that was a little <laughs> like, guys. The end racism. Oh, okay, guys, we'll end it. <laughs> yeah. Thanks for telling us. No, oh, that, we weren't yeah. sure we were supposed to. We weren't sure we were supposed to end it. And then we saw it written in a small font in the end zone. Right. I feel like that, they've had that at like EPL games for like five years now. But racism isn't over. So I guess it's not working. <laughs> Yeah, so there's that. And then of course there was also the um, you know, the the fans in the stands at Kansas City. First of all, fans in the stands, which was like, oh, this is happening. Booing the moment of unity on the field. Uh, and it was like, oh yeah, like it it just it made me remember that this is not a problem that the NFL can solve and it doesn't know how to deal with problems that it can't solve and it can't really fix 
the damage that the league did, you know, four years ago. And so it's just in this like no man's land. But it's also it's also not surprising that this what was it, six thousand fans in Missouri that went to a football game in the middle of a pandemic were not in progressive. Favor, were not <laughs> I'm stunned to find out that they're not, uh, you know, um, big, uh, yeah, like anti-racist. No, uh, sure. And that's a good point. But also, this was never about the flag. You can't even pretend it was about the flag anymore. If you're going to boo players locking arms and just standing in the middle of the field when there's no no national anthem, no nothing else, just showing that they're united, you're going to boo that, then this was not about the flag. So shut up about that. In my yeah. humble opinion. And also, <laughs> I think you're preaching to the choir, Sarah. I know. I, yeah, know. I know. think it's a little <laughs> tough. Also, I mean, the NFL, we talked about this last week. They were never going to be able to do something that made everyone happy. In fact, most likely they were going to be able to do something that made no one happy. And that's just the state of being uh, the, the, the most popular, the biggest, and the most bipartisan league in 2020. I will say I thought there was one, the Colts game, there was the image from that with Colts head head coach Frank Reich kneeling and his players all standing behind him. I found that powerful because white people in positions of leadership need to do the most to combat racism. Like it's not, it shouldn't be up to, to black athletes to try to and racism like it has to be done by white people and white people in positions of power so i i thought that was very powerful and i appreciated that from from reich and i think his players appreciated that from everything i heard um that kind of thing i think can be meaningful a lot of this other stuff felt very it felt kind of silly and and i wish they would just stop playing the national anthem i've wished that forever though um it's silly that we play that before sports games All right. I think we can end this discussion here for now. Let's take a quick break and then we'll be back to talk about basketball. We are delighted to be joined now by 538 senior writer Chris Herring, who just wrote a great article up on the site about what happens next for the Houston Rockets, who crashed out of the playoffs over the weekend. How's it going, Chris? Good, aside from these internet challenges I'm facing here in my apartment. How are you guys? We're good. <laughs> Technology. No, we is fought through it. Uh, and and this is what this is what separates, you know, the champions from teams like the Rockets <laughs> flamed out of the playoffs. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. <laughs> so on Saturday, the Los Angeles Lakers secured their place in the Western Conference Finals by sort of gently putting to bed a flagging Rockets squad by a score of 119 to 96. The Rockets had put a lot into winning this year right now, but on ESPN Sports Center, Tim Legler diagnosed Houston's problems as, at least in part, just wanting to go home. But man, this one was flat, and then the Houston Rockets, once they fell behind, They really wanted no part of it. And I I said it the last game. It felt like to me in the last game in the third quarter, it felt like the bubble effect. Like we're playing a better team. We're not beating this team. We've been down here for two and a half months. It's time to go home. Chris, do you do you agree with that? That Houston just sort of gave up the ghost in this series? Or are there other factors that are more significant to what happened here? Well, Well, I think it's fully possible that it was both. They, you know, this isn't the first time that the Rockets have kind of gone out sad and and given us a really lackluster effort, seemingly, in, in the closeout game of the series. 
you can go back to a couple of years ago, which was really the first time that happened where James Harden just had one of the all-time worst James Harden games we've seen against the Spurs. And, you know, I think even last year, um, I think Neil and I partnered on a story where we kind of asked the question of whether it made sense to be using James Harden as much as the Rockets were when they were at one point were kind of struggling in the playoff race to just to make the playoffs. Harden's playing 40 minutes a night, doing what he always has done from a scoring standpoint, but asking the question of whether it would burn him out when the season was coming to an end in the playoffs, um, which has always been a concern. And so this is now like the second, third time we've seen the Rockets go out this way. I, I do think it's fair to, to point out the, the Daniel House suspension um, because I do think that he probably mattered to them more than maybe he should have or maybe than he would have to another team. But that's no excuse for the way that they looked in the last game or two of the series. I do think the Lakers were better, but I don't think the Lakers were that much better. And I think the Rockets winning game one proves that they shouldn't have been that much better. How much of a factor was Russell Westbrook? Like how much of it is on him specifically? Yeah, I I think a a big chunk of this is on him. Uh, Certainly the gamble that the Rockets were making when they made this trade to begin with for Russell Westbrook, again, something that me and Neil talked about, um, I think right at the start of the season, kind of asking, would this work for them? And was Chris Paul just frankly a better player, even at his age, a lot of this was going to be predicated on the idea that Russell Westbrook was not going to suck in the playoffs. And he's done that now for a couple of years. Um, And, you know, it's one thing to, to suck. It's another thing to suck and like continue to shoot just as much. You know, it's, it's hard because you don't want to just really throw the guy out the window necessarily. But, you know, he, he had COVID, the idea that he had a quad injury. But at a certain point, like a, a pattern is a pattern, particularly when he's kind of counted on to be a second star with James Harden. James Harden is so efficient when you throw in a guy that undoes all that with his own shooting or his lack of shooting. Um, it, it just backfires and you don't even get the defense that you would get from a Chris Paul or the IQ and the and the ball security that you would get from Chris Paul. So it was pretty disastrous this series. Yeah, Chris. Um, I was just looking at this the other day. And so, first of all, Westbrook had a usage rate of 31.5%, which was second on the team behind Harden at 32.4% in the playoffs. Harden had a true shooting percentage of 64%. Westbrook, on the other hand, had a true shooting percentage of 46%. Wow. And that was actually the third straight playoffs where he had a usage rate of at least 31% and a true shooting percentage under 50%. And he's been under 47% each of the last two postseasons. And so, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's a great point that when he's your second scorer, and it's not just like he's the second scorer and then there's like a third option. The third uh, highest usage on the team was Eric Gordon, but he was under 24%. And everybody else in that rotation had a true shooting percentage of at least 53%. And a lot of them were over 60% when you're talking about Covington and even Jeff Green. They found a way to make Jeff Green efficient uh, in the playoffs and you know in his stint with the Rockets. And so it really does sort of pop out to you that Westbrook uh, and, and maybe to a much lesser extent Austin Rivers, who also had uh, you know some pretty bad numbers, but he, at least he wasn't eating up so many possessions with it. Um, that 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 was where that offense kind of went to die so many times on so many possessions against the Lakers. And t- like you said, Chris, he just kind of kept trying to shoot his way out of it, and that's exactly what LA wanted. Yeah, I mean, think about that. So Chris Paul, you know, especially twenty twenty Chris Paul is never going to be at a 31% usage rate. So maybe you think about it from a traditional standpoint. You want your two guys, your two best guys, to be able to just kind of go toe, toe-to-toe with Anthony Davis and LeBron 
if that means shot for shot, what have you. But if Chris Paul isn't shooting and when Chris Paul isn't shooting, you know he's at least setting other guys up. If he's setting other guys up that are shooting, you know, 62% true shooting or something like that or 55%, he's getting good shots for other people that are making shots. Um, Russell Westbrook, on the other hand, is getting shots that would be good for most people but not for him where he's just being left alone by himself to, to take threes that, you know, historically he's been worse than a 30% shooter from three. It's just not a good shot for him. When Westbrook was at his best this year, he was getting to the basket, taking advantage of the fact that they were going small and spreading other teams out. He was averaging 33 points a game for almost two months. And then, you know, basically more or less the pandemic hit and then everything shifted. And uh, so it's, it's just, it, it's, it's bad because this is the first year of this experiment, but Russell Westbrook is going to make 41, 44 and $47 million over the next three years. And when you play this poorly for three or four postseasons in a row and you're 31 and, you know, your game is very reliant on athleticism. James Harden is 31. Granted, he's not focused as much on his athleticism and doesn't rely on it as much, but this team isn't getting younger and the money starts to become more substantial every year that these guys are paid. Eric Gordon has a lot of money on the books for the next four years. And he had a career worst season basically between his injuries and his numbers and was horrible in these playoffs. So the Rockets, I mean, there's just really not a whole lot of bright sides right now when you look at the Rockets at all. There was, this was always going to be a tough fit, right? I mean, I feel like you, you, laid it out so well in your story yesterday, Chris, that, you know, you've got this team that relies on spacing and efficiency, and then you have a player who is neither efficient nor well-spaced. And like that sort of blows up the whole thing, right? The whole, the very specific kind of way that the Rockets are trying to play. I don't know how Russ was ever going to fit into that particularly well. Yeah. I mean, your, your, your best hope on some level was that that version of when we saw for those two months where, they get rid of Clint Capella, who, you know, for most of the time he was there, was a very, very good player. And so they got rid of something that worked very well. You know, Harden was throwing more lobs to Capella than any player in the league. Um, they get rid of that and they get rid of the rim protection that Capella brings, all for the sake of bringing in basically, uh, you know, a lineup in Covington and stuff like that, that will give them the opportunity to just have everybody standing basically playing four corners where everybody's really spread out. The defense has to make a decision now about whether they're going to guard in the corners and out at the perimeter. And if they stretch out that far, it gives Russell Westbrook more opportunities to kind of penetrate into the lane. He played extremely well during that portion of the season when that was the case before the pandemic. The problem I think the Rockets face now, honestly, is that I think we, uh, you know, analysts, people that really look at analytics closely, uh, I think everybody kind of looks at individual games during the regular season and even maybe week-long stretches where teams aren't game planning for you that hard. Uh, you know, they're playing you for one night, one individual game, and you can have stretches where you're going to look fantastic for one individual game, two games, two months maybe. But when you have a series where a team gets a chance to adjust and really look at what they're doing wrong or how you're having the success you're having over seven games, it's really difficult to sustain that and the Rockets are built in a way where I don't really know what adjustments they can make. They don't have a rotation where they can just throw in a big man to stop LeBron at the rim or to stop Anthony Davis if uh, if somebody like P.J. Tucker gets worn down from having an assignment to cover someone that's five inches taller than he is. They don't have things that they can go to. It's kind of all or nothing. And I think that's kind of the story of the Rockets right now. Everything that they have 
between this all-in trade that they made for Westbrook, between the lineup that they use now that they have Covington, everything is so all-in. And I just don't know that they're really designed to make adjustments the way that you need to do when you get to the playoffs. It's either that this was good enough or it wasn't, and it very clearly wasn't. So, Chris, you wrote about all options being on the table now for the Rockets. I mean, they need a new coach, um, just for starters. <laughs> what? Where do they go from here? Would a specific kind of coach help them? Or is that the style? I mean, the style is so closely associated with Mike D'Antoni that is there someone new that can come in and and rethink this? Or are they sort of locked into that? I have no idea. I mean, I, I, I think that I think that, you know, maybe a coach can come in. The only thing I can really think of, and this is someone who would be at the top of my list or near the top of my list, no matter what team I, I was running. Kenny Atkinson, to me, would seem like potentially a smart hire here. The reason I say that is a really, really great record with point guards. Um, someone that got you know a lot of credit. He was kind of the guy that worked with Jeremy Lin in New York, um, was an assistant under Mike Budenholzer in Atlanta. And obviously, Russell Westbrook and James Harden don't need to be developed. They're former MVPs, but they are point guards that have the ball in their hands a lot that you know, Kenny Atkinson worked with a very small lineup where Jared Allen was kind of the tallest guy he had out there a guy that was maybe 6'9", 6'10". And this is a team that you're looking at with the Rockets that has a similar situation where they're going to be playing small a lot of the time and trying to do things that keep a defense off balance. And the Rockets have just relied on Harden being able to keep them off balance for years. Now maybe inserting someone that puts more pressure on you. Um, you know, it's one thing to look at Michael Jordan when the triangle offense was introduced to him as a young 20-something, you know, maybe mid-20-something. James Harden is 31 um, Russell Westbrook is 31, will be 32 soon. I don't know whether that works at this point in their career. Um, I imagine they both are very hungry to win because they've never gotten the title. But I, I honestly don't know if a coach is, is really the solution. I'm sure the Rockets are hoping that. But it, it to me, quite frankly, kind of seems like a bigger problem than that. And I kind of feel like it's maybe one that they can't trade their way out of because they gave up so much in the trade to get Westbrook in the first place that at this point, you probably would have to give up assets to unload him somewhere else. I don't think any team would just take him in a straight-up trade anymore. Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, anybody that inherits this team, no matter who they are and how good of a coach they are, they still have Westbrook and Harden and these contracts, especially the Westbrook one, that you know Westbrook has a player option in 2023 and, and guaranteed years up through that. Uh, and like you said, he's 31 you know so what do you do with that if you are the rockets going forward uh do you have to i think you talked about this in your piece do you have to think about maybe trading harden doing the unthinkable and you know while he still is close to the peak of his value trying to kind of transition um out of the harden era or is that too crazy i mean doesn't that kind of have to be on the table i mean so they they had there are moments where they probably had their best shot to do this. You know, they were pretty neck and neck with the Warriors, which is nothing to be ashamed of, certainly, with how good the Warriors were. They were one of the all-time great teams. You know, I think had they won that game seven, I think we would have had a conversation about them maybe being the greatest team ever, at least for a single season. And the Rockets didn't quite have enough between Chris Paul getting hurt and 27 misses in a row on threes, some things that, you know, were very, very kind of improbable that happened. Um, but, yeah, I mean, Westbrook, if you're not going to be able to move him, and even if you could move him, you would probably be weakening the rest of your core or your ability to really build on your future through the draft. So the only thing you have left at that point, I mean, Covington would certainly get you something, um, but you just traded to get him, and he's 
the kind of player that seems like someone that's going to lead to a solution rather than someone that's creating a problem. Harden is kind of really the only thing you have at that point where any team would want him. He's not necessarily in his prime from an age standpoint. Um, or if he is, he's probably at the back end of that. But no one's worried about the way he's going to age. He's never been hurt. He's not the kind of player that you worry about getting hurt a ton because of how he plays. He's someone that plays very under control and gets to the line a lot, but is doing that because of the way he tricks people, not so much because he's just so athletic. And so, I, I mean, you – I don't know that there's really a, a modern comparison for exactly how much you would get for somebody like him. Um, Kawhi was different because Kawhi was going to be a free agent a year from when he asked out and when the – Spurs gave up on him. You know, Paul George was kind of a ransom situation when he went to the Clippers because Kawhi Leonard basically said, I'll come there if you can convince another star to join with me. And so at that point, it was almost like the Clippers were trading for both Kawhi and Paul George. So they gave up literally everything they had draft pick wise and asset wise. So Harden's not quite in that situation because he's got a bunch of years left on his contract. And he's led the league in scoring for three years in a row and is wildly efficient in an NBA where efficiency is everything and isn't as bad on defense as a lot of people would like to make him out to be. So I I don't even know what you would get in a trade for him, but I absolutely think the Rockets have a responsibility to hear it out. And I, I think it's worth mentioning, too, as I did the story, the Rockets owner, um, for all the talk that he likes to make about how he's not looking at the dollars and cents aspect of everything all that closely, he's been hit really hard. Tillman Pertie has been hit really hard by the pandemic as far as kind of where his uh, largesse comes from. And so I, I, I do think that it's something where um, for a team that is in one of the biggest markets, but has been really reluctant to pay the luxury tax, the idea that all of a sudden that they're just going to kind of keep paying for this team and keep paying players that are making 40 plus million a year to basically go out and be a team that seems pretty guaranteed to not win a title I just I, I would be really surprised if they're not at least thinking about it. I don't expect them to admit it, but I would at least hope that they're looking at the landscape to see what they could get for Harden. It is wild to think of a Rockets team without James Harden, but but you're right. Every option has to be on the table for them. All right. I think we can end this here for now. Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We'll be back in a moment for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of these descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. I have to share this small story. A good friend of mine listens to the show uh, and her six-year-old son heard it uh, the other day and was saying, oh, it's time for the rat hole. (laughs) Good name. We so, should call it the rabbit so hole. We're gonna yeah, we should we're gonna rebrand it. the rabbit hole it? as the rat hole for for my friend Sam. Uh, this week, guys, for our rat hole slash rabbit hole, um, I, I have something for you. The sports are coming hot and heavy right now. There's football, basketball, baseball, hockey, soccer, golf, and tennis all in the thick of things. I'm probably missing something, but it's already the list is already too long. You missed so. Formula One. Oh, yeah. Oh, I guess. Yeah. NASCAR, IndyCar. Okay, sure. I mean, you didn't mention horse racing again, but I, I'm, I've, <laughs> Sorry, grown to, I've come used to this. <laughs> You're numb to it. All right. I did definitely miss some sports. But in the midst of all of this, one of my favorite events in sports starts 
today. It's WNBA playoff time. I am wearing my orange hoodie in celebration, and we have a preview of the playoffs up on our website, which is, in case you were unsure, 538.com. The WNBA playoffs are uniquely wild, and I wanted to talk more about what makes them so much fun and what other leagues might look like under a similar system. I'm sure our sports-savvy listeners already know the format of the WNBA playoffs, but just in case anyone has forgotten or we have some new listeners this week, here's how it works. The top eight teams in the standings, regardless of conference, make the playoffs. The first round pits the number five seed against the number eight seed, in this case, the Phoenix Mercury versus the Washington Mystics, and the number six seed against the number seven seed, the Chicago Sky versus the Connecticut Sun. That first round matchup is just one game. Winner go home, survive in advance, the whole thing. The winners of those two games, which are both tonight, then advance to play the number three seed, Los Angeles Sparks, and number four seed, Minnesota Lynx, on Thursday in another single elimination game. After those high-stakes affairs, the winners will then have to face the number one seed, Las Vegas Aces, and the number two seed, Seattle Storm, who will have been just chilling with their buys during the first two rounds. Oh, and teams are reseeded after each round to, again, reward higher seats. So what this means is that a team like the Sparks, who went 15-7 and during the regular season with a 682 winning percentage, could just be done if they have, you know, one bad game. Now, I am on record as hating certain single elimination games. I despise MLB's wildcard playoff game, as I have ranted to you guys before. It's antithetical to everything else that happens in baseball. But in basketball, we're already used to a sudden death postseason. It's what we love about March Madness. And I don't I don't mind it there because we haven't played the entirety of the season in series against opponents. Every contest in basketball is just a single game, you know, the end. So in the WNBA playoffs, I, I really like the drama that that, uh, that that makes. But what I also like about it is the reward for winning the regular season. If you've proven yourself as one of the best two teams over the course of the season, then you still get a best of five series and then, and then another one if you win the first to capture the title. And if you've fallen a little short during the regular season, you have a couple of extra single elimination tests to prove your worthiness before playing with the best. The setup has definite consequences. Since the format was enacted in 2016, every title winner has been either a number one or two seed. And in fact, only one of the eight finalists in those four years came from outside of the top two seeds, the number three Washington Mystics in 2018. So there's a serious advantage to getting those double buys. So I think this format is fun and works for a league that wants to build excitement from the jump. But I wondered what a recent postseason in another league might have looked like following the same format. So I give you the 2019 MLB postseason as played under WNBA rules. First of all, there would be two fewer teams. We only take the top eight regardless of conference or division. So that means that the NL Central would have gone unrepresented. No Cardinals or Brewers. They had much, much worse records than than the number eight seed or even a team that fell just out of the playoffs in this scenario. The Nationals almost didn't make the playoffs. They tied in regular season winning percentage with the Cleveland Indians, who in fact did not make the playoffs last year. 
to settle ties and to determine the winners of my upcoming fake playoff games here that I'm going to talk through. <laughs> I used the tie-breaking scenarios from prior to 2012 before the before the second wildcard team was instituted. So the first option is head-to-head records. The Nats and Indians just so happened to play last season. And in fact, every every matchup that is to come here, the teams played in the regular season, which doesn't happen all the time. It's sort of interesting. So they did play at the end of last season, and the Nats swept the three-game series in Washington. So though nothing is really fair about that. The eventual champs do get to, to go ahead and play, and the Indians do go home. So the Nats would have been the number eight seed in this setup, and they would have had to face the number five Braves. The Braves had the better regular season record in head-to-head matchups, so in my scenario, the Nats are out. The number six A's would have faced the number seven Rays, which is actually what happened in real life in the AL wildcard round last year. So in the interest of reality, the Rays move on in our world too. Now for the reseeding, the number seven Rays would take on the number three Yankees, while the number five Braves would take on the number four Twins. The Yankees held the head-to-head advantage over Tampa, and so did the Twins over the Braves. The Twins then went on to face the number one Astros, and the Yankees would take on the number two Dodgers. In a stunning turn of events, the Twins would take down the Astros on the strength of their 4-3 to record against them during the regular season. Is that why I don't mind the Astros cheating scandal, BT-dubs? Like, my team beat them during the regular season, so I didn't think it was that big of a deal? I don't know. Something for me to ponder. Um, and the Yankees would have beaten the Dodgers. They won their single series against them last year, two to one. Here's where we're just going to end the simulation because no one needs to talk about what happens when the New York Yankees play the Minnesota Twins. The important thing is that everyone had fun and learned something through sport. There doesn't always need to be a champion, guys. (laughs) (laughs) But there will be a champion in the WNBA playoffs, and we'll find out this week if one of the lowest-seeded teams could challenge for the title. Just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it can't happen, but the smart money is probably on the Aces or Storm, who, again, don't have to play until Sunday. What do you think about the MLB playoffs held that way? Would that be more fun? I, I like, look, I like rewarding the teams that finish best in the regular season. Um, of all the formats we've looked at across the sports landscape, this one seems to reward the best seeds um, the most. So... I, I wonder if the, I wonder how fair that is, but I, I do think single elimination in basketball works really well. Um, I think the problem with baseball is that it's so starter dependent, and it kind of isn't really. You kind of need to see it. Like baseball is kind of built to to be played in series. They play series all year long, and you get to see a good chunk of the rotation in each one of those series. So. That's really, you know, what I think defines like a World Series winning team. Whereas basketball, you know, as we've seen in the tournament every year, the tournaments, um, one one and done is a very fun, exciting, and fairly accurate um, in terms of rewarding the best team. Um, so, so I like it, but <laughs> I, I, it's not great for upsets. I'll tell you that much. I mean, I was looking at ESPN's WNBA predictions and literally every pundit on there, they had like seven of them pulled. They all predict the same exact finals and the same exact winner, um, Seattle beating Las Vegas. Wow. That's surprising. I The way the Aces finished the season, that, that surprises me a little bit. I mean, I, agreed. Like, it's not... 
it, it really is harder for there to be, um, you know, breakthroughs there. Though I would say the sparks with how good they looked all season, I don't think you'd want to. I mean, I, I'm sure that Seattle is not excited about facing them in in the the semifinals, um, presuming that that's how it all works out. Um, cause they're a really good team. So this year could be a little bit different. I think there's a pretty clear top and bottom of the league. And so, I mean, it would be surprising to me for the mystics to make it past even the Mercury tonight, honestly, but I do think there could be some, um, some interesting things play out among the, the top four teams. Yeah, and I, I like this a lot more for baseball than for basketball because I feel like in baseball you do need that that element to reward the the teams that were best over the regular season um, because we know the playoffs can be so random. Whereas basketball is kind of the last sport where you need to build in extra advantages for the top teams. They usually win anyway, uh, and so by by further you know, giving them advantages here it really is just paving the way for like, a, maybe I'm wrong, maybe there could be upsets, but it seems like it's paving the way for a pretty chalky uh, final, which you think I would like, but <laughs> yeah. I like picking the chalk against, you know, when, when it's when it's not so overwhelming, at least when, when it, everything is sort of laid out for that to happen. It's like, eh, that's that's not very fun. But we'll don't see. Don't you think the single elimination games, don't they give a little bit more like there are two different things at play here. Single elimination games could reward randomness, whereas the buys reward like <laughs> not randomness. Um, I, so I don't know. It feels like they're doing both things in this playoff, which is yeah, sort of it's like a, a two things in the direction of the top teams, though, because not only do you get to sit out the buys while other teams have to play their way to that level and you don't have to face the possibility of an upset and you get the longer, uh, you know, larger sample, longer series when you do play. But uh, there is the greater possibility that worse teams will knock off uh, the better ones along the path to you. And so you'll get to face potentially a much easier opponent once they do finally reach your stage of the playoffs. So I feel like everything is stacked in the direction of the favorites here. Yeah, no, for sure. Well, the WNBA playoffs get underway tonight again with those first single elimination games. They should be really fun. We've had some great, um, exciting basketball played in the last couple of years of the playoffs, and I'm expecting that as well this week. So tune in. All right, that will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on your podcast app of choice. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at 538.com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil, Jeff, and Chris, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.